0: Welcome to the truth in His art. I am your host, Rob Lee, and we're your source for candid conversations about arts and culture. Today, I am thrilled to be in conversation with my next guest, an award-winning multimedia artist, educator, and cultural organizer living and working in Baltimore. Please welcome Dr. Ada Pinkston. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you for the invitation and um, thank you for the welcome. Thank you for that warm welcome. (laughs)
0: you you've done a podcast before thank you thank you post-production post-production uh so you know as we get started here um and again thank you for for making the time because um everybody's super busy you know and if someone's like hey i can give you like 30 minutes i'm like i'll I'll be done in 25 um so before we delve into like the main topic like could you you know introduce yourself um to the listeners and i have a second bullet point or or two bullet points after that but i at least want to start there
1: Okay, cool. Um, Hello, my name is Ada Pinkston. I am an artist, educator, cultural organizer, sister, auntie, great auntie, daughter, granddaughter, and uh, human um, who teaches currently as a lecturer at uh, Towson University in the art education department, and also as a lecturer in professional practices at Maryland Institute College of Art. And sometimes those girls at George Washington calls me to teach new media and digital art, and I go there and teach that. (laughs) Um, But yes, this conversation around time is something that I center my work around. So I say my medium is time. And I see myself as an unbound artist um, whose practice is is rooted in performance art, um, performance art installation and digital media. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: Thank you. So you, you did a much better job than what I would have done. I was like, oh yeah, I kept out the human part. I kept out the, <laughs> I kept out the daughter. I kept, I kept all of that stuff out. It just you know it would have been like, yeah, artist moving on. <laughs> so, um, so I want I want to add this this component to it. Um, you know, what are some of those like early experiences? Like maybe that sort of first experience where you like explored art, explored creativity. And um maybe some of those early experiences that shaped your perspective as a cre as a creative as an artist today.
1: Yeah. Um, I think we all as a kid growing up, everyone asked, well, What do you want to be when I grow up? When do you want to be when I grow up? And when I that was the answer to the question for me when I was four years old, I was like, I want to be an artist. And then everyone in my family was like, Nah, that sounds crazy. <laughs> mm, I don't know. You know, this is like. Queens, New York in the 80s. Um, So people are like, I don't, you know, my family really pushed me to consider other things. Um, And then I remember going to some museum. So the cool thing about growing up in any city is that you can go to uh, museums for free, right? And I remember going to one of these contemporary museums on a school trip and seeing a piece of gum on a pedestal. And I was like, wow, I can't believe somebody put a piece of gum on a pedestal and made it a sculpture. And then that was when I was like, maybe it's possible. But then like my family was like, nah, you know, that's some white white people stuff. So, (laughs) you know, and then um, I, Ended up, so my parents are from Mississippi and I am basically the daughter of people who were like the first generation out of poverty. So they were like, nah, you're not going to be an artist. You're going to college. Um, and I also am the youngest. So like I saw my older sisters kind of goof off a lot, like, you know, didn't graduate high school immediately. And then, you know, all these other things happen. So I was like, "I'm not. that's not going to be me. I'm going to go straight to college. Did that um became uh my undergrad degree was in psychology because i was rejected from my first um application into film i went to this liberal arts school in connecticut and they rejected my application to be a film major because they didn't like my writing and that was the first so you know this this conversation around rejection is important as an artist too and it was it hurt me, but then I also, am the kind of person where if somebody tells me, no, I'm going to go further in, right. I'm going to like prove them wrong. Right. So this was the college years, but, um, Oh, also I'm totally not being sequential. Another experience around like this conversation around, like looking at art as a career path and trajectory was in middle school. When my art teacher was like, I want to talk to your mom. And I was like,
0: I hope did the same thing. By the way, (laughs) yeah, I was like,
1: "What?" Yeah, I was like, "Um, "Okay." So I was all nervous. I was like, "Mom, like this lady wants to talk to you when you get off of work." Um, And I was like nervous because I was like, "Oh, she's coming up to the school after because she was, you know, moving around and doing. She was working as a CPA at the time for the state." And I was like, "Oh, my mom's going to be so mad at me. I hope it's nothing." nothing bad so anyway so then we go into the meeting and the teacher is like um it is a really good um artist you need to encourage her to keep doing or making art and I suggest you sign her up for classes at the art students league and the art students league was in midtown Manhattan and it's still there you know and I did a couple classes there it was in middle school and um, in middle school, you know, there were figure drawing classes. And I came home one day with a nude of this big um, fat man. And my mother was like, you're not going back there. <laughs> Again, like, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's, um, you know, and the Art Students League was a place where it's um, sliding scale classes too, you know? Um, but yeah I mean so yeah there are different points along the way (laughs) that um, I think led me to this moment but um, yeah so then after undergrad I did a lot of um, gigs so like working as a production assistant in different you know also I applied to hundreds and hundreds of jobs after undergrad and didn't get them. But the jobs that I did get were through word of mouth. <laughs> That's another important point that I wish somebody had told me. So like my sister's, not my sister, my high school friend's older sister was a stylist. Yeah. And she was the first, she got me my first production gig. Um, Cause she, yeah, she was, she did styling for like uh, photo advertisements And she had me go and, like, buy. She gave me a list of things that she wanted me to buy and a list of things she wanted me to return. And I was making, like, I don't know, anywhere from, like, $150 to $200 a day just buying clothes for her, her, you know, for her sets. But that wasn't consistent. So then I started doing temp work. And then um, I also have a background in teaching, too. So, like, um, that's a whole other conversation, I could keep going. So, <laughs> my, so my, uh, my undergrad degree started with 9 wow. And my grad degree, I'm sorry, it started my undergrad degree. So when I started college, September 11th, 9-11, right? Mm-hmm. That happened. And that was a big moment, right? For obvious reasons. And then at the end of my undergrad degree, it was um Katrina. Mm-hmm. Hurricane Katrina, so I feel like because of those two moments at very important increments of like, you know, becoming, evolving into an adult, right, yeah. I think that that placed me in a unique, um, really thinking about considering greater humanity in relationship to my work, mm-hmm. um, But I think also too social media does that for everyone, for like the next generation in a lot of ways. So that's a whole other conversation. But those are but those two bookends, I think. um, They were really impactful. Right. So um, when 9-11 happened, I. Was trying to call my family and none of the phone lines were working. I have an aunt that worked down there, but she was always late to work. (laughs) And she was Walking off the train and everybody's running opposite, and she's like, Oh, everybody's running opposite. I'm going right back on the train. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I was like, Wow. So, yeah. So she survived it. You know, there's so many other stories like that, but, um, but yeah. So, this kind con- this of understanding of myself as a creative person has constantly evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Katrina happened, I was really in interested in going down and being of service um, because I had spent time in New Orleans because I have family down there too. And I reached out. So I've heard that the only schools that were open were these schools called the Freedom Schools. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to them and they didn't respond to my emails. And I was like, oh, I guess. You know, this is like another job that isn't <laughs> responding to me. So I was like, oh, I guess I'm not, they don't want me. But the freedom schools that did respond to me were in San Francisco. <laughs> so then I ended up moving to San Francisco in 2007 and worked at the Third Baptist Church in San Francisco. Um, as a servant leader, as a, you know, as a teacher in a freedom school. Yeah. And for those that aren't familiar with what freedom schools are, like the current, the present day freedom schools are all about bridging the gap in literacy uh, rates in the country. So the, um in the late eighties, early nineties, there's this research that was done to find out about like reading levels uh, across grades and the literacy rates at the time, I don't know if this research has been done again, but the literacy rates uh, between races were very similar to the literacy rates that existed in the 60s, right? So like, and you know, the third third grade reading level impacts a lot of other outcomes for people's lives, right? So the idea of the Freedom School is that if you make a curriculum that is culturally relevant for black children, then um, their reading levels increase and um, and it's true. And it's also a free so it's a free after school program and it's a free summer program. And there's different satellite programs across the country. But the. um, uh, There's an organization in D.C. that funds all of them. Um, And Marion Wright, it's called like the Marion Wright Elderman uh, Foundation or something like that. But um, yeah, so, but the original Freedom School was, it started in Freedom Summer in the deep South when um, people had to pass all of these crazy uh, reading tests in order to, to vote. And um, all these people from, you know, like up north, like New York, Chicago, went down south to you know, get people ready for these reading tests so they could be able to vote, and that so that was the Freedom Summer, and that's why the Freedom Schools are called the Freedom Schools to this day. Anyways, um, but when I was in San Francisco, uh, I, I, you have a lot to <laughs> to edit, right? Uh, no, no,
0: no. I'm 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 here. I'm enthralled. This is all baked into who what makes you you, right?
1: Yeah, that's true. This is true, right? Yeah, but when I was in San Francisco, I, so I had a lot of friends that I met, and um, from the time, like, high school, because another part of my growing up life was going to the New Yorican. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was the only place that was, like, the New York and um, where else did it? I think it was, yeah, it was, um, there were the, there were a lot of 12 and, oh, the knitting factory, the knitting factory was another venue because they had 13 and up shows. And it was like, they wouldn't serve alcohol, but it would just be about the poetry and it would just be about the music or, you know, um, so I saw Black Star at, um, at the knitting factory, like stuff and Talib Kweli, um, you know, and there were there would be a lot of people going through um the New Recon Poetry Cafe. But um anyways, so and I also had friends that would participate that were part of um Dance Theater of Harlem and that type of um I didn't take classes, but I had friends that did, you know what I mean? Um so anyways, um, so over the years, so a lot also a lot of the like life is all about relationships. Right. And it's crazy because, you know, I have like, I basically have like chosen family that are in the San Francisco Bay area. Hmm. Um, so when I moved there for teaching to teach at the third Baptist church, I, um, yeah, I had a lot of community to stay with, you know? Yeah. So um, one of my friends from undergrad literally was like, she was gone for the summer um, and she was teaching out in Oakland um, at one of the schools, one of the middle schools there. And she was like, I'm gone for the summer. Here's my apartment. Here's my car. It <laughs> yeah.
0: and
1: like move, you know what I mean? And move, <laughs> come move out here. You know, so that's that's how I ended up in the San Francisco Bay Area for many years. Yeah. Um, and... That also was where I saw it was possible to be an artist, but not the type of artist that puts gum on the pedestal <laughs> and in the, you know what I'm saying? And sure. it's like in the uh, X museum, the the contemporary museum of that's hip, you know, but it, how to be an artist that is of and works with community mm. and sustains the work, you know. Um outside of this like extreme commercial world, right? Yeah. Um, so I worked with Rana Young, who was a Chinese American artist on her, but she's also a um, she's a graphic designer and she teaches by by trade and she teaches at um, city College in San Francisco. and but she also does public art and she's really good at getting like public art um, or writing public art proposals and she was selected to do a public artwork in the east oakland community library that included this architectural art glass but then also this community storytelling component and it was like one of these big budget pieces and she hired me to be one of her studio assistants to do outreach online outreach Um, because I had, you know, in the temp world, that was like one of the gigs that I did was doing online outreach. Um, So, yeah. And it was really, it was a really beautiful project. It was a, it was cool to see like how someone runs their studio. Um, You know, she was like super detail oriented. Um, And then also another turning point moment was in 2008. (laughs) when the uh, economy collapsed the first time. Right. (laughs) You know, so like that was a moment because, you know, but it was good because I had just gotten hired full time at uh, one of these big like nonprofits and the economy collapsed, they gave me a big severance (laughs) and they were like, sorry, we just hired you, you know, or like, I think they were firing the people they just hired or something. And I took that severance, and I was like all depressed. Like, damn, like what? I don't know about insurance, et cetera, et cetera. And I was walking in my neighborhood. At the time, I lived in in uh, I lived in the Mission in San Francisco, and I happened across this place called the Red Poppy Art House,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that was where I was introduced to a whole community of people that were music makers mm-hmm. and um, music makers that really. There's like the traditional forms of music, but then there's also a lot of experimental music that was happening at the Red Power Poppy, and it still is. Um, and I saw that they were looking for someone to run their family art program on Saturdays. Yeah. And that's how I started doing that. And then I did that for five years. And then I was, you know, at a certain point, I was like, I need to professionalize my practice more. Because you know, this working for other people's or working in other people's studios, it was good learning, but it's also good to, um, I was trying to like branch out more. Now, in retrospect, I should have done more research. So that's another some more words of advice is like research, like research before stepping into a thing. Um, but yeah, so I ended up at Mica um, for grad school another reason why I ended up in micro for grad school is because I was dating this person who was from here. And I was like, okay, thought we were going to be together forever. And that didn't work out. And then um, I was like, again, I'm stubborn. So I was like, well, I'm gonna didn't work out with this person, but I'm gonna make it work it out with with this city. So um, yeah, so I ended up staying uh, after grad school, and I could keep going. <laughs> you, you, I, I saw you looking at the time.
0: Yeah. No, oh, I'm absolutely not looking at the time. Looking at my questions. <laughs> um. um. So, no, thank you. Uh, I, I and I think it's a lot of relevance there. there's a lot of richness there because it's like, oh, you you did that as well, and that <laughs> and that. It's like there's a lot that goes into. Um, ultimately in terms of experience, it's a lot that goes into what sort of creative contributions we're putting out there, you know? And so hearing about that and kind of getting that extra context definitely helps um, a lot. So I want to, I want to ask this before um, I want to oh, ask this
1: question. Also before you ask another thing while I was doing family art before they had a big, they got a major grant, mm-hmm. but for the first three years of doing family art, I was working at a restaurant. Um, I was a hostess and I was also a server at this amazing pizza place called Little Star. And the owner of the restaurant was super chill. (laughs) Like, cause this is the thing. It's hard to find a place where the management is chill. You know what I mean? Um, And that guy is super chill. Like they also, I mean, also in California is different than in Maryland, but you get minimum wage plus tips, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, and that's the standard. So that was also pretty nice. Um, so like having a job for a while that enabled me to um, do family art and also like start to like think through like what my creative practice is in yeah. a more meaningful way. Also while taking classes at City College, San Francisco. Um, Cause the classes were $20 a credit and they had an amazing um, printmaking facility that overlooked the bay and the Sanf- the bridge, the bay, the, that orange bridge Yeah, for $20 a class.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. wow. $20 is <laughs> super cheap. That's, that's a huge perk. So Golden Gate Bridge, no? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to I want to hear this from you real quick, um, your your thoughts around like, you know, performance art because you, you touched on that early on. Um, and like as a as a performance artist, like like how do you view like performance art as medium as a person that's a performance artist?
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So another thing I was doing, so I was also at so City College was in one place that I was taking classes. Another place was this place called Lions Ballet. Mm-hmm. And lines Ballet is a so the the there's this history of um, movement and dance that um, that is all about not non uniformity. Right. Like when you think about like ballet or like traditional ballet, like all the bodies are the same and like everyone has to be like succinct, like doing the same movement, exactly the same. Right. Whereas like um, there's a movement. And dance, where there's consideration of like how to show variety and diversity of bodies, right? Because that's a reflection of who we are, right? As a political statement, too, right? Um, So, yeah, so I I would take classes with Amara Tabert Smith, who used to be an urban bushwoman, too. That was another person that I really uh, admire and respect in whose movement practice um, helped create or helped to shape who I am as a performance artist. Um, And I think that there's a couple of different ways. So performance art as a practice um, is also connected to like conceptual art too. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's this moment when the breakdown of like what um, what is considered an artwork happen because it's also, um, it's like it's of the time, right? It was of the time there's this, you know, and right now we're in another time that's similar, right? It's like the po- politics and the greater society, the uh, the environment is who knows what's going on with the environment or what's going to happen with the environment. Um, so I think that considering how we use our bodies or how we um, interact with, how our bodies interact with each other in space is um, is important. So um, for me, so my personal definition of performance art is um, considerations of interaction in time and space. Um, It's also, depending on who the person is, it's like it could be a combination between theater and dance and sculpture and installation, but it doesn't, it could be a combination of those things or like some, or maybe just one of those things just turned up. Um, It's also thinking about um, how to communicate a message. So the artist is the primary, um, the performance artist is usually the primary uh, person that designs the score or the, um, the choreography or the the ways that the performers interact with the public there's also oftentimes usually like this breakdown between the public and the performer that you don't necessarily see in traditional theater spaces performance art can exist in a traditional theater space but it can also tradition you know exist in a traditional gallery space it can also exist on the street it can exist in all three of those places simultaneously right it's like um and in that way like this conversation of of being unbound really is um is really relevant right so that's that's why you know that's why i say my medium is time but that's also why i say i'm an unbound artist um because at the end of the day it's like how do we create art that moves people right that moves People to a feeling. Um, ideally, that's what our goal is, right? And I think, you know, sometimes the feeling isn't so good, right? Sometimes it doesn't have to be a good feeling. Sometimes it's a it sits. It's, it's a it's something that the audience has to sit with. Um, or how do we move the audience to get to a space to have a desire to unpack? Mm. they just witnessed or experienced or participated in you know yeah um yeah thank you i think i answered your question i don't know you
0: did you did you did you absolutely (laughs) did um so let's see um um, so let's talk about um like what's your 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 current work or have your current artistic endeavors mm-hmm. and um you know with with some attention around the um ideation incubation period uh, incubation phase of like all right, we're generating these ideas like you know what what does that look like for you
1: yeah, um so I do a lot as I've mentioned before. Um, so I usually am working on at least two different projects so like at the same time. So there's a lot of simultaneous things happening because um, sometimes I might be working on one thing and need to move to another because you reach a stopping point, you know what I mean? Um, and you need to go to the next thing um, or I need to go to the next thing. And also a lot of my work is grounded in, um, conversations with ancestors or um, spirits or um, even like meditations in forests. You know, I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. Um, So, and then I do a lot of research. Um, So research into a a site, my present work is about um, responding to sites, specifically sites of memory and also um, responding to like physical architectures and how to break those physical architectures up um, through um, performance, right? So, um, I, I think also another thing that's I'm not mentioning is witnessing and experiencing other people's art. Yeah, that's another big part of a process because you might go to the BMA and be inspired by like one of the old works that you see in there, you know what I mean? Um, Writing is another part of the process, like writing for nobody to see even, or sketching for nobody to see, or even painting for nobody to see, you know, Another part of the process is visioning, like planning, making a plan over the next three to five years. Um, Yeah, so that's part, I mean, I know that was a lot, but that's part of the process. Um, But also keeping one thing centered so mm-hmm. one the one project that has been centered for more than five years is this work around, actually, there's two projects that have been centered, but I'll focus on this one. Just work around memory. Uh, it's called Landmarked, and it's about considering how do we create a more universal understanding of sites of memory that are more that have more narratives of black women. Mm-hmm. In them. Um, so the last, or Black woman and also Black people, right? Um, so the last iteration of that work was collected by LACMA and it was an augmented reality piece that was a monument for Biddy Mason. And it's a part of the Black American Portraitures exhibit that's on view at Spelman University right now. Um, and the piece has, so It's geotagged Mm -hmm. um, at Magic Johnson Park in South Central, but it also has another, um, it's a QR code where you can see a different iteration of it. And that's the one that's in Georgia right now and at Spelman. Um, And, but I'm also thinking about, okay, well, how do we, so the story of Biddy Mason is one that, is a story of resilience. Mm-hmm. But it's also a story that if you are a child in Los Angeles, you don't know that story. It's not it's not you don't know the story of Biddy Mason. Or people don't know the story of of Biddy Mason as much as they would know the story of I don't know X-Man that or WABC man that has all the chapters in the books, right? Um, Even though her story is really relevant um, to a lot of the children in Los Angeles, right, Um, and beyond. So she was born enslaved and walked from Mississippi to Los Angeles um, with the people that enslaved her because they were Mormons. And most of them, most of the Mormons that they, you know, their leader was like, I have a vision and we have to go west. But really, they were just trying to keep their property of the people who were their property. Right. And they all went with this guy. Most of them ended up staying in Utah because it was a long journey. And. But whoever the people that owned her were like, now we're going to keep going west. So they kept going west. And then she became, friend, or her daughter became friends with um, this, this other, this black man who was like, you know, California isn't a slave state. You should not be enslaved. And then their court case um, rendered them free. And that was what made California a free state. And then they, um, she was a midwife. So the, the reason why, her story is so crazy is because she was a midwife and she was able to make the money from her skill when she was free and with the money that she was making as if she was like a super skilled midwife at a time when you know people were dying left and right like um so with the money from being a midwife she was able to purchase parcels of land mm-hmm. in los angeles and so she was born enslaved and died a millionaire at a time, you know what I'm saying? This is like in the 19th century when like women, like even white women couldn't vote, you know what I'm saying? So right. it's like, it's a very, it's her story is crazy. And it's also, um, but anyways, I bring that up to say, so like my work, and I honestly wasn't even going to make this project about her. It was gonna be just an AR monument um, that centered the legacy of, of all of Black Angelinos. But Biddy Mason's name kept popping up. And I was like, oh, this she obviously, you know what I mean? Like her, her spirit was um, trying to communicate something. Right.
0: There were no coincidences um, there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um yeah, so that's that. And then. I'm, you know, in my studio, I have all sorts of things that I may or may not share with the world. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, and that's okay. It's like process, right? Like I have a, um, I have a whole like abstract painting world that, I, you know, again, may or may not be seen, but um, in terms of what's happening. So also through most of the school year, like it's, a lot of admin on the teaching side, Mm -hmm. but in the summer um, is when I get a lot of my studio work done. And um, this summer, I'm gonna be doing a McDowell Fellowship or McDowell Residency. I'm really excited about doing McDowell. Um, And that's in New Hampshire. And while I'm there, I'm gonna be working on these textiles that are Going to be a part of this other installation that's going to happen at spaces in cleveland ohio Um, and they have a residency as well and the project is about um, birth access and birth equity Mm. and uh, i'll be exchanging conversations with black women About experiences of childbirth, and in exchange for those conversations, um, we see we'll see if we get the funding. But in exchange for those conversations, the the goal is to give them free holistic healthcare Um, because, and then from those conversations, continue to work on this textile. So you know, I make these immersive installations that are sites of um, of interaction. So that's what's going to happen in the summer. And yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> I could keep going again, but yeah. Thank you.
0: Thank you. That, that helps. And it's it funny, like it's answered, like in, in going through it, like most of what I was looking for with the exception of this last question I have for you was answered. So I think, I think we're good in that regard. Um, I want to, I want to ask you about this lastly, before we get into the rapid fire questions, because you're still going to get those going to rapid fire questions. Um, so in terms of like, challenging yourself and kind of stretching the boundaries of like what your own creativity is, your own art practice. Like, what are your your thoughts around that? Like, how do you try to challenge yourself? And I've, I've heard the augmented reality and mm-hmm. I, you're, you're the first person I've spoken to and doing this podcast over 600 episodes at this point, who's mentioned augmented reality. So shout out to you. Um, so how do you, how do you continue to challenge yourself?
1: I would say um, taking classes is a really, you know, any opportunity I have to learn something new is a a way to challenge myself. I'm also as an artist, I'm very much interested in thinking about how to work outside of the traditional paradigms, right? Because this idea, you know, another part of being a performance artist is that the performance art, uh, art history, doesn't come from this long lineage of, you know, these white guys in these books, you know what I'm saying? So I, um, and in that way, I um, I feel, I feel like there's only, the only way I can go is um, circled around these dope black women, right? Like Adrian Piper, uh, Bernie Searle, Lorraine O'Grady. Right. Um, so yeah, so in terms of this conversation of, of how do I challenge myself? Um, it's asking myself if Zora Neale Hurston saw this work, how would she respond? Or if like my, one of my favorite aunts who's on in the next world, like how would she respond <laughs> to it? You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Thank
0: you. That's 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 great. Um, so I want to I want to throw out. I got three rapid fire questions for you. Mm. Um, first one: uh, Are you a morning person or a night owl? Which what are you?
1: You know, it really depends on the time of month. <laughs> to be honest, um, and also the time of year, right? Yeah. <laughs> So like if I am at a residency someplace and there's nothing to do and I'm in the forest and I'm you know, i not spending my time spinning my wheels all day, I will go to sleep at 8 p.m. and wake up at 5 a.m. You know what I mean? But if I am in a place where it's like I'm grinding, hustling from going from this thing to this thing to this gig to that thing, Sometimes I don't go to sleep until like two in the morning, you know. Um, but my body oftentimes won't let me sleep past nine, mm. which I don't know what it is, but um, but yeah. yeah. But I do, even though I'm up, like I'm like groggy and annoyed in those moments because I'm like, why, you know?
0: But I think that might be the name of my memoir: groggy and annoyed. Mm that might be the case yeah um and so
1: no, but that's a funny question though because tony morrison said tony morrison I, I was listening to some talk of tony morrison she was talking about that the best time to write or the best time to create is like four in the morning
0: really i might, I might try that i might try, try just, yeah i might try getting up because um I, I know it was one one night recently i was just having trouble coming up with questions Mm. And like you know you, you, you I, I one of the things I always kind of shoot for is someone's like no one's ever asked me that before I I'm usually shooting for that I, I want to have something that's interesting so the, no, so the guest doesn't feel like you know I've answered this a thousand times right and I I try to do that and I remember it was one night where I just woke up at like three in the morning and I just had inspiration I wrote like 20 questions just I had the notepad next to the bed and I couldn't help it was just just coming out just coming out really quickly um so in in reference to like sort of the studio setup and and how you're working, is it um, organized to the smallest detail, or is it quote unquote controlled chaos?
1: Oh no, it's definitely controlled chaos. Yeah, no, I'm not. In terms of like how my studio is set up right now, it's con- I mean at this point. I may get to a point like next year or next. I'll put that on my vision board. Like next two, three years, well, I'll have a studio manager. Um, But right now, it's control chaos. Mm
0: Very. This is the last one. um, Last one for you. Uh, I'm always interested in like what artists, what creative folks, what they eat. What is your What's your favorite snack?
1: Mm, Popcorn. Okay. I really like popcorn. Let me tell you. Also like dark chocolate. Um, anything crunchy. Oh, so like more recently, I've been into home making some homemade hummus, and eating them with these like mini cucumbers that you can get from the little. Yeah. You know, don't ask me why but like my you know it's like you know again it's like seasons there's some seasons where it's like certain things but there's like year round it's like usually popcorn dark chocolate yeah
0: no, that that's that's great i, I definitely um have the uh, the snack thing when it it kind of switches out like right now i i haven't bought them um uh, before uh i just have dates i just have dates downstairs oh. and i was um I was like making something yesterday i get the um hello fresh boxes and i was like yeah every every meal is like vegetarian that's just what i'm getting because they look interesting and i'm like all right let me chop this up yeah i'm gonna have a couple dates and i was like yo who are you now like you know, <laughs> two months ago you were just eating chocolate and drinking whiskey now it's just like i'm gonna eat these dates Uh oh, that's kind of healthy it's it's got all the antioxidants and the uh the good fiber in it
1: yeah that's hey good for you i like um <laughs>
0: I like popcorn and chocolate
1: <laughs> i like popcorn and chocolate honey i don't yeah i also i also like digestive cookies but oh, the one with the dark chocolate not with the milk chocolate
0: <laughs> milk, milk, milk chocolate is an american creation that's terrible um
1: mm-hmm.
0: i like it's literally my my partner says she was like i don't eat commercial chocolate <laughs> it's like i need chocolate that came from brown people and that's yeah. just what that's gonna be
1: Although um, sometimes I I haven't had a Snickers bar in a long time, but that used to be my, my favorite thing to eat as a kid. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, Snickers. That's a whole other Snickers are delicious. moment. Yeah. So um,
0: one, I want to thank you for coming on to this podcast and spending part of your Friday with me. And um, two, I want to invite and encourage you to share with the listeners where they can check you out, check out your work, social media, website, all of that good stuff. The floor is yours
1: all right well you can check out my work on my instagram it's a pink stone um actually coming up there's a conference that myself and dr Kelly young are, are co-organizing It's called archival silent noise and it's happening at Telson. and you can find out about that at invisiblearchitectures.com And
0: there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Dr. Ada Pinkston for coming on and sharing a bit of her work, her story. And uh, I'm Rob Lee saying that there's art and culture in and around Baltimore. You've just got to look for it.